Well, good morning. Sure is good to be here singing, fellowshipping, and, and uh, just having a, having a good time with brothers and sisters in Christ, talking to them. We're in First uh, Peter chapter number 2, verses 13 to 17. I want to talk to you today about how to live on earth as citizens of heaven. When you're an ambassador of a certain country and you're residing as a diplomat in another country, diplomats usually have what's called diplomatic immunity. And that's a privilege that is oftentimes abused. A lot of times there are small abuses that just can end up being annoying. The most common manifestation of this is inconsiderate behavior by diplomats. For example, the diplomats to the United Nations in New York City use New York City as their personal parking lot. Um, one year, diplomats ra- had racked up 143,000 parking tickets. It would have cost them $15.8 million if it weren't for diplomatic immunity. And of course, Russia was responsible for 32,000 of those parking tickets. But the the king of diplomatic abuse would have to be North Korea. They have a long history of smuggling drugs as a, as a means to, to make it in a foreign capital. They've even been willing to use their own diplomatic corps to carry out this drug smuggling. And much of this can be linked to the fact that North Korea pays their diplomats very little. And they basically tell them, you have to make it in your own country as a diplomat. And that forces them to, to resort to bootlegging and smuggling. In 1976, the North Korean embassy in Denmark was denied uh, permission to bring in 2.5 million cigarettes for personal use. Later that year, the whole embassy staff was ejected from the country after two North Korean diplomats were found in a limousine with a half a ton of marijuana in the limo. The Bible tells us that we're ambassadors for Christ. We come to a section of text that, that's telling us who we are. We're, we're citizens of another world. And Peter somehow or now tells us how to relate to the governments of this world. And I'll give you a hint. One of the ways that we do not relate is diplomatic immunity. We don't have that as Christians. Now, by all accounts, how Christians relate to government has been a thorny issue for the last two millennia and will continue until Christ comes back. And so I hate to say this on the front end, but I have to say this. You need to stay with me today because I'm going to be taking first Peter, first Peter chapter two. I'm going to be jumping connecting thoughts in a lot of different places. So you're going to have to stay with me on this. Let's step back to verses 11 and 12 and and look at the big picture, the context of what's going on here. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, Now that's the setup. We Christians are exiles and sojourners. And what are we urged to do? We're urged to abstain from passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So what does that mean? What that means is that among the Gentiles is where we live. And we are to have conduct that is what? 
honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, now stop right there. When they speak against you as evildoers, I want you to go down to verse number 15. I'm going to connect two thoughts. All right, stay with me. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, here's the question. What are the foolish people speaking? What are they saying? The answer is verse number 12. They're saying that Christians are evildoers. Do you catch that? That's what they're saying. And, and they've been saying that against Christians for a very long time. They, they used to say back in the Roman Empire that Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in a Roman emperor. They, Christians murdered their babies. Uh, Christians were all, they had all kinds of deviant behavior. And so you keep your conduct honorable so that they can't speak against you as evildoers. And then what does he say? So that they may see your good deeds. That word deeds is important. And glorify God on the day of visitation. Now let's. We are sojourners, exiles, refugees. And what are we supposed to do? According to the passage. Well, there's an American government. There's a Mayor Culpepper. There's Governor of Virginia. We have a House and a Senate. And what are we to do with them? How are we to relate with them according to the Scripture? We are to be subject to every human institution. Now, I want to give you an idea where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. So, stay in chapter number 2. And let's look at verse number 18. Verse number 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Go to chapter 3, verse number 1. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives, or likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Look at verse number 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And look at verse number 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so he's dealing with us in these verses of Scripture. He's dealing with us as citizens of the world, and He's dealing with all the relationships that are set up. Human institutions and, and human relationships. And, and He's dealing with business and economics and family and marriage. And then finally in chapter 3, verse number 8, He says, all of you. And He's dealing with us with a certain command. And that command is in verse number 13, be subject to every human institution, every human government, every your business relationships, your family relationships, education, kids, teenagers, your teacher, whether a teacher happens to be mom or a teacher happens to be somebody at, at the school. You're to, to submit to authority. So every human, every legitimate human structure where there's an authority figure we are trying to figure out how to be subject to them. So there, there are police to submit to civilly, right? And, and there are military police to, to submit to in the military context. There, there are bosses to submit to. There are husbands to submit to. 
parents to submit to, teachers to submit to. And so all of these human institutions, we are to be subject or submit. Now, that's the big picture. Now, what I want to do is narrow it down. How are we Christians as citizens of another country? And therefore, according to verse number 16, we are incredibly free from subjection in this country. How are we to relate? How, how do we do that? What was our job? What is our purpose? And so that's that's what we're going to unpack today by way of a very long introduction. So here's my first question I want to ask. That is, what do we do about government? What do we do about government? Well, be subject for the Lord's sake, or verse number 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the who? The emperor, the king as supreme, or to governors sent out by him. Now, what are these structures given by God to do? What are they given by God to do? Two things. Punish evildoers and reward good. Now, is that all the government is to do? It, it's not. But in this context, this is what Peter wants us to see. Now, notice something. The doing of good that governments are to praise is something that we Christians are to excel in. Whatever they praise is what we're to excel in. And verse number 15. For this is the will of God that by doing what? Doing good, you Christians should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we're going to go out of our way to do an especially large amount of good. And since the government is to reward or praise that doing good, it's something recognizable for the world to see. And so Christians don't have a moral standard that's completely different from the world. If I were to draw a line, there would be a continuum. And, and here would be the kingdom of earth down here on this line. And up above it and overlapping somewhat is the kingdom of God, right? And wherever those two lines overlap is where we are to do good and, and we are to do these things. So governments can recognize this good because it overlaps. Now, what I want to do is ask a second question. And here it is. What is it about our subjection to government that makes it distinctly Christian? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Or maybe it's not to you. I don't know. It is to me. How do I submit to government in such a way that makes it uniquely Christian? Now, let's just review. Where are we ultimately citizens of? Heaven. Okay? So, that's our primary citizenship. Our first citizenship is not in this world and so what is our obligation to this world? Subjection. Right? Submission. This subjection should be uniquely Christian. And what makes it uniquely Christian? When you try to live it out, there's a very real tension between being subject to human institutions and in verse number 16, living free. And what makes the the, um, the subjection uniquely Christian? It's for the Lord's sake. 
in essence, what you're doing for the Lord's sake is you're looking past the king and you're looking to Jesus Christ. And so you're submitting to Jesus Christ in view of the emperor, the king. And that, by the way, that's the same idea as you go through all these other institutions, whether it's um, children to your parents. Kids can say, I'm jumping way ahead of myself, but I got to say this anyway. Uh, we'll get to this. But kids, you might say, well, my, you don't know my dad or you don't know my mom. Well, can I tell you something? You know Jesus Christ. And so you submit to Jesus Christ. And on earth, it's you're submitting to your parents because Christ put your parents in that place. So you're looking past your parent to Jesus Christ. You might say, well, you don't know my boss. Well, it doesn't matter. You submit to your boss because you're looking past him to Jesus Christ. You don't know my governor. Well, I do live in Virginia. I know a little bit about him. I'm learning a lot, actually. And I better keep going. So we need to ponder this. We need to exalt the Lord over the emperor and over governors. And in the Roman Empire, that could get you in trouble really fast. Do you know why? Why could that get you in a lot of trouble fast? Because in the Roman Empire, the emperor was God. Remember what? In the Bible, we have no God but Caesar. Caesar was God in the Roman Empire. And if you did not admit that, you could get yourself into trouble. The second meaning is that the Lord sent us to be subject. We're sent to be subject. Now look at verse number 18. Now what I'm going to do, just in case you're wondering, I'm going to unpack the meaning and then I'm going to make application at the very end because there's a lot going on in these passages. Verse 16 sheds a little more light. You ready? Live as people who are free. I like the sound of that. Don't you? Live as people who are free. But the question is, free from what? Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are supremely subject to God. We are slaves. That word servants, um, th- this is a pet peeve of mine. Can, it, can I, This is not in my sermon notes, but i got to tell you this. Almost every single time the word servants is used in the New Testament, it's actually the word slave. The word is doulos. Uh, If you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it translates, it's the only translation that consistently translates that word as slave. We are slaves of Christ. I understand why a lot of the English versions use the word servants because of cultural things and stuff like that. But the actual word is slaves. And so we do it as slaves of God. We are we are slaves of God, but we're in free in respect to emperors and governors. And so here's the way this logic works. If we're called in front of the governor or an emperor and they ask us who our Lord is, we say God. But in verse number 16, in our freedom from emperors in our freedom from governors, God sends us back in to subjection with them. And this is what makes our subjection uniquely Christian. We we don't owe rulers anything because of who they are. We owe we subject ourselves to them because we have a higher king and in freedom 
Our king sends us into the world to submit to them for the Lord's sake. Do you understand? So we submit to president or governor not because of who they are. We submit to them because of who our king is. We are completely free. Uh, please pay careful attention. We are completely free when it, in regards to President Trump, Governor Northam, or anybody else. But And we're subject to God. But what God does is He sends us back in to be subject to them because we're His servants, His slaves. See how that works? It's not a call for civil disobedience. It's a call for submission to what they say. Now, are you confused? Are you completely confused? Well, take your Bibles and let's do a cross-reference. Let's see what Jesus taught about this in Matthew 17. Matthew 17. You might be saying, oh, pastor, you're beating the horse a little bit. Maybe. But uh, we're going somewhere. Matthew 17 and verse number 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay tax? And he said, Yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Now, this is, this is completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but it's really cool that the Bible says Jesus spoke first, meaning Jesus knew exactly what went on between him and the tax collector, right? He spoke to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take a toll or a tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, what? Then the sons are free. Now what he's saying is if you are sons of God and he's king of the universe, you don't owe anyone anything because of their intrinsic authority. You only owe them if God tells you to owe them. See how that works? And what's next? Jesus said, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me, for yourself. Well, this is tax season. I don't think anybody's going to go fishing today and find anything in a fish's mouth, so don't try it. But what Jesus is saying is because you're our a son and daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you don't owe any human governor, any ruler, anything because of who they are. You owe it to them because God tells you you owe it to them because you're subject to Him. In Mark twelve seventeen, Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Now, what is God's? Thank you. Everything. Everything is God's. And once you recognize everything is God's and you render yourself subject to God, then you can discern what is Caesar's and appropriately render it to him. So back to our passage in First Peter chapter number two, since we are servants of God's, we can be subject to governor governing authorities because everything is God's. And now I want to ask this question. What does that look like? That's the thorny issue, isn't it? What does it look like for us to be subject to human government? And Peter answers that question. You look at verse number 17. 
What does he say in verse number 17? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. (laughs) So what are we to do? Number one, we are to fear God. We are to, to, to fear God. If you stand before the emperor and, and his supreme dominance over the earth, and he asks, do you fear me? Like when Jesus stood before Pilate. And you can look to him, that human governor, and you can say, I fear bringing dishonor to Jesus Christ. And he calls me to submit to you. You don't have to be afraid of any human governor. We are to fear God. I have a supreme king over you, and I fear him more than I fear you. Secondly, honor all people appropriate to their role. Now, where do I get the appropriate to their role part? Look at verse number 13. Look at what he says. Honor the emperor as supreme. Verse number 14. To governors as sent by him. So how, how the, 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 the key there is the word as. That tells us the appropriateness of the honor that, that we are to give. Now the question then becomes, if we're to honor all people appropriate to their role, <clears throat> let me just throw out a scenario. How do you honor a rapist and a murderer? If we're to honor all people. Did it say, um, honor all people but violent criminals? No, it says honor all people. You're not going to honor them the same as you would your wife or your boss, bottom line. You would honor the rapist and a murderer. Let's just think about this for a minute. How would we do it? Well, first of all, we're going to give them a fair trial, right? That's, that's one way that we honor a, a rapist and a murderer. We give them a fair trial. Number two, we are going to give them a fitting punishment for what they did. In other words, justice and fairness governs the whole treatment of these people because they do have a certain dignity because they're made in God's image. You don't treat them like animals, even though they have surrendered many of their rights. You treat them a little bit differently, you see? But you honor all people. Teachers, police, presidents, parents, etc. All these people have a different honor. It's a different type of honor. I honor my, my mother differently than I'm going to honor my wife. And I honor uh, different people differently. And so you honor all people appropriate to their role. Number three, give special affection to believers. Because he says, love the brotherhood. Among the, the, the unique subjection given to all sorts of people, there's a special affection given to brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I love the affection of this church. It's a very affectionate church. And I love that. And that affection needs to continue whether we agree with somebody or not. We defer to them because we love them. And there's a special affection that we have. I don't, I don't have to beat that horse. Everybody knows what that's talking about. Number four, be overflowing in good deeds. Overflowing. Now, I want you to notice a pattern about good deeds because we're going to come back to this in the future. Notice how much Peter has to say about good deeds. For example, verse 15, that by doing good. 
Peter overflows with the concept of doing good. Look at verse number 20. He says, uh, "Be, um, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse number 6 of chapter 3. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Look at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and what? Do good. Verse number 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Uh, Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will than for doing evil. Chapter 4, verse number 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. What? While doing good. First Peter just excels in this idea of good works. In doing good, it, he overflows with it. And so we're subject to human institutions, not by eking out minimal requirements such as keeping the speed limit or voting. Does any government honor that? Did you get a letter this week, John, that said, thank you for obeying the speed limit? Okay. Ken, did you get a note from Virginia saying thank you for your note, your vote? It's a beautiful vote. They don't, they don't, governments don't do that sort of thing. You know what Virginia did for me? Welcome to Virginia. Here's your tax. <laughs> governments don't honor people who are just eking out what the basic is. Okay? We, as believers, look for ways to bless our city, bless our culture, bless all the institutions that we're involved in. We're looking for ways to do good, to silence the ignorance of foolish people. No unbeliever is is impressed by minimalist Christian ethics that just does the, the minimum, just enough to get by. What impresses the world is when we overflow in good works. Let me give you one more. Silence the ignorance of foolish people. These people really are ignorant of Christian beliefs and Christian ethics, and they're really speaking evil of us. Therefore, we need that to change. Now, when we're talking about doing good, there are many wonderful things that we can do in the community to do good. And this is something I was thinking about the last couple of days. Um, this week was the one-year anniversary of, of Howie's passing, right? Uh, on the 20th. Many wonderful things were said about him and memories were, were shared on social media, and, and that was wonderful. Uh, I, I, I wish that I'd been able to meet him, honestly. The, the church is, has healed very well from that hurt. But there's a and and the other thing that the church has done, they've done a good job of embracing a new pastor. And there's a there's one great big difference between Howie and me. And this is where you help me. If you can, Howie, from the best I can understand, it was like an ideas factory. 
He was always coming up with ideas for the community and that sort of thing. And I love those creative people. If I have an idea, it's because I read it somewhere. <laughs> I, am, I am not creative whatsoever. But you know what is exciting? Is I talk to people in the church who have creative ideas for doing good in the community, for things that we can do as a church. Do not be afraid to come talk to me or, or one of the elders about that because one of the things that Providence Bible needs to be doing is being out in the community overflowing in good deeds so that they can see Jesus Christ in what we do. And if we're known as a church that overflows in good deeds, that will be attractive to people when they begin looking, when, they, when, uh, when uh, they're looking for meaning in life. And so, please, that's a huge difference between how I mean. I've heard, I've heard some good ideas, and I want, I want us to, to implement some of these ideas, but if you have ideas... Please share them. Now, I might look at you and say, hey, that's good. Come up with a plan. <laughs> but uh, overflowing in good deeds, that's so important that we do that. Now, I want to wrap this up by seeing what Peter, what Jesus said to Pilate. So if you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I'm going to wrap up in just a couple minutes here. And I'm a pastor, so a couple means like within 10 or 15 or 20. <clears throat> John eighteen thirty six. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate said, so you are a king. And um, asking him about some of the things that he said. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate answered to him, so you are a king. Now, notice what Jesus did. This is what his kingship looks like. This is what Jesus said it looks like. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. To what? This is important. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. We're here <coughs> on earth not to make Jesus the manifest secular world uh, ruler of this world. In other words, we're not here to usher in a Christian kingdom in America. We're not here so that we can get Christian values back in government or whatever you want to say. And I know I might be stepping on some toes just a little bit. There's a very politicized atmosphere here. Not, I mean, not in this church, but in this, we're in the epicenter of it near Washington, D.C. We are here, listen very carefully, we are here to bear witness to the truth that one day Jesus will be king over all the earth. And here are the truths that we need to speak about because one day King Jesus is coming back and He's going to rule forever and ever and ever. Do you see the difference in the emphasis? That's the message that we proclaim. We are to bear witness to the truth. Look at uh, 1 Peter 2.9. Turn there. 1 Peter 2.9. As I wrap this up. 1 Peter 2.9. Look at how, how important this is. The truths that we speak. The, when Jesus says bear witness to the truth... 
Peter unpacks this in 1 Peter 2, verse number 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. There's, there's the description. And here comes the so that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. The One who will come someday. Who will be the great ruler. We are proclaiming the truth of the One who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And this is the aim. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation, in the day that He comes back. Why? Because they heard your message. They saw your deeds. They trusted your Savior. And now they're excited that He came back because now they're one of you. That's the message that we're left here to proclaim. We subject ourselves to the emperor. We subject ourselves to human governments. And in that subjection, we excel at doing good. So that makes us different than all the people around us. And when Jesus comes back, because we've been proclaiming the truth, they will glorify Jesus Christ. It's such a greater message than, hey, let's Christianize America. It's a greater message than let's make sure that we keep our Second Amendment rights. It's a greater message than we need to make sure we have a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. It transcends every nation, every empire, every, every great empire that has ever been has collapsed. And that should tell you something about the great nations today. The one according to Daniel, that will not is the one that Jesus Christ ushers in. And I don't know about you, I cannot wait for King Jesus to come back. So be subject and overflow in good works. We thank You, Lord, for the the truths, practical truths that we heard today. I, I know, Lord, that there was a lot of explaining Heavy on explanation today. But these are so practical for our witness to You. Our witness of Your return. And and for evangelism of the world. Lord, we, we would love to see this nation turn in a direction that's not going away from You, but rather towards You. But that's not our final purpose, Lord. Our final purpose is to declare Your glory. And so I pray, I plead that You will set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. That You will set our affections in such a way that we just can't help but to talk about You. That we can't help but to do good because of the good that You have done. Lord, I I pray that we will be a church that people see overflowing in good works see us being subject to human governments, not antagonizing and not protesting, but subjected to it so that You will be glorified in the lives of every single one of us as a church as a whole in Christ's name. Amen.